Well, it is truly a delight to be able to be back with you all here at Cornerstone again. Uh, I just love taking the opportunity to come up and minister with all of you. It's great for Mackenzie to be able to come back up and fellowship with so many friends and familiar faces. And it's a delight for me to be able to continually come back to the Gospel of John and to study it and again and to just be reminded of some of these deep truths for myself. And so I appreciate the opportunity to prepare these messages. It really is a blessing for me. Now, the last time that I was here, we spent time in John chapter 2. We talked about the middle portion of that chapter where Jesus cleanses the temple in the morning service, and we spent just a few minutes in the evening service talking about the end of chapter 2. And so that sets us up to be talking about John chapter 3 this morning. And I, growing up, the only thing I knew that was in John 3 was John 3.16. That's, that's it. I didn't know that Nicodemus was in chapter 3 at all. And so it was almost like a revelation for me when I was growing up to connect the story of Nicodemus with, chapter, or with verse 3.16. And so uh, when I was studying to prepare messages on this originally, I was thrilled to try to go through all of that at once. And I realized, the more I've been studying it, that there is far more than one message in John chapter 3 and the words that Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. So today... We're going to talk about John chapter 3 and not even mention verse 16. We're going to be in John 3 and talk about just the, 15, the first 15 verses. So please follow along with me as I read. Again, it's John 3 verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray before we go any further today. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this account from the Gospel of John. We're grateful for the example that Nicodemus provides for us. And we're grateful for the life that you give us through the Spirit in regeneration. And Lord, I pray that as we study this passage today that we all uh, walk away with a greater appreciation for what you do in our lives. Lord, the life that you give us from outside of ourselves that we could never attain for ourselves. We ask that you would have these truths uh, fresh in our minds as we go through this passage today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story once about an Arizona game warden who was on the trail for a poacher 
who was spotlighting deer at night. He was going out with a spotlight and shining deers in the eye so that he could more easily kill them. And this game warden was insistent upon catching this man. He was on his trail for a long time, but yet he continually was unable to apprehend this criminal. Well, one evening as he was driving home, he saw a spotlight shining off in the distance in the wilderness where he thought this poacher might be operating, and so he was thrilled. He went home, he changed into his warden's outfit, and went out in pursuit of this poacher. And as the sun set and it became dark, he followed this man's tracks up into the wilderness until they came to a pool of water. And so the warden, not wanting to go any further than necessary, got out of his vehicle and shone his light around the area. He saw the tracks going into the pool of water, but on the other side of the pool, there was no tracks. And so he searched around the area with his light a bit more, hoping to find this criminal, but he found nothing. And so he figured this man must have double-backed and gotten away from him yet again. Well, soon after this, the poaching stopped, and the warden kind of moved on with his life, until one day he got a call from a neighboring police department that said, who, were, who was saying that they had a criminal in custody on unrelated charges, but who was also confessing to poaching deer. And they wondered if this warden would like to come interview him. And of course, the warden jumped at the chance to do this, to close an old case, and so he went and sat down with this criminal and soon realized that this was, in fact, the man he had been searching for. But then the criminal told the warden something he was not expecting. He told the warden about how, an evening, how one evening he was almost caught. He said that a warden had tracked him out into the wilderness and cornered him, and that the warden got out of his vehicle and was shining a light around the area looking for him while he was hiding in the brush. And he said that all the while this warden was searching for him, he had the crosshairs of his Uzi machine gun fixed on that warden watching every step. And he said at a certain point he had determined if the warden took one more step in his direction, he was going to open fire. But the warden didn't. He left for some reason. And so after concluding this, this interview, the warden was understandably shaken. He had no idea that he was literally one step away from dying that evening in the wilderness. And he left with a much greater appreciation for the fragility of life. And I really love that story because it highlights how ignorant humans can be of the life and death circumstances that surround us every single day. But far more significant than life and death circumstances is, is spiritual life and death circumstances. You see, each and every one of us falls into one camp. We are either dead spiritually or we are alive. And what's, what's so troubling is that the vast majority of humanity is completely unaware of that distinction at all. And in our text today, Nicodemus is the man who represents the spiritually unaware. And it's ironic because he is, as we'll learn, at the very height of religious society in Israel. And yet he is what is the example of the spiritually unaware. And I believe that the Apostle John wrote this text so that we would understand that true spiritual life is only possible through Holy Spirit-worked regeneration and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But let's zoom out for a little bit of context. If we think back to the end of chapter 2, and in fact the entirety of chapter 2, we know that Jesus is in Jerusalem at the first Passover of his public ministry. He has cleansed the temple. He has performed many signs and wonders and has started to gain a lot of attra attract a lot of attention to himself there in Jerusalem. 
And it was exciting to see and, and, to, and to see these crowds of people following after Jesus, but Jesus did not share that same enthusiasm. At the end of chapter 2, you read that, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And if you were with us in the evening service last time I was here, we talked about how these verses are, are best understood as Although people seem to be believing in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them because he saw the contents of their heart and saw that their belief was false, was counterfeit, was not genuine. And then if you read verse 25 and how it flows into John 3.1, I think we'll see that, that this chapter division really gets in the way of understanding what John is trying to communicate. He says, it says that Jesus knew all people, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, Now there was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So Nicodemus is a representative of that group of people at the end of John chapter 2 that seemed to profess belief in Jesus, that seemed to be full of spiritual life, and yet they were not. And I think this is where we can see the first main point of our text today, and that is that Outward displays of intellect and religiosity are not evidence of internal spiritual regeneration. Let's look at the description of Nicodemus there in verse 1. He is a Pharisee, so we know he is very learned in the Old Testament. He understands the law possibly better than anyone else. He is a great scholar of the Old Testament. But even beyond that, he's a ruler of the Jews, and so therefore a member of the Sanhedrin. He is elite even amongst Pharisees. He is a member of the ruling council of religious experts in Israel. And later, Jesus will even call him the teacher in Israel. And so Nicodemus is absolutely the top religious guy in Israel. He's like the most religious person you could imagine. He checks all the boxes that you would want someone to check. And if you asked anyone on the street, like, who's the most religious guy? Who's the most spiritual guy? They'd probably say Nicodemus. This guy is the authority. And yet he is just another man before Jesus. Another man in need of life, in need of spiritual life. In verse 2, we read that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And a lot of people read, I think, more into that phrase than they should. But I think it's at least likely that Nicodemus was afraid of being um, outed as interested in Jesus, as, um, and it's even being interested in being taught by someone else. It would kind of be embarrassing for Nicodemus to be in that position. And so he comes to Jesus at night. And look at how he describes Jesus there in verse 2. He says he's a rabbi, a teacher come from God, and all these things are true, but they fall short of the testimonies that John the Baptist and the disciples gave in chapter 1, declaring that Jesus was Messiah, Jesus, Jesus was Lord. Nicodemus has a short-sighted view of who Jesus is. He lacks the spiritual life to see the truth. And so I think the application point for us is that we all can be like Nicodemus. We can all appear to have all of our ducks in a row, to have all the knowledge that anyone would want. We can quote all the verses. We can say all the facts. But it doesn't mean that we're spiritually alive. We can dress the part, look the part, talk the part, 
and still be completely spiritually dead. And we will never fool God. You see, the status of being spiritually dead and being spiritually alive is just as plain to God as it is for us to go to a funeral and understand where the dead body is. No one goes to a funeral and is confused about what is the corpse and what is the mourners. And for God, when he views humanity as a whole, he sees that plainly who is dead and who is alive. No matter what they look like on the outside, God knows. You can be Nicodemus or you could be some vagrant in the streets. The distinction between spiritually dead and spiritually alive is just as clear to our Father. There is no fooling God. Let's move on and examine verses 3 through 7. And here I think we see our second main point. And that is that in order to have spiritual life, a person must be spiritually regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gets into this right there in verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, since the last time I was here, uh, my wife and I have had our first child. And so I've gotten to watch that whole labor and delivery process. And it gives me a new perspective on the analogy of being born again. As it makes me think about, what, what is a child's understanding of reality in the womb? It's so limited, right? Everything they know is dark and wet. They don't know what it's like to be hungry. They don't know what it's like to breathe air. They have such a limited understanding of what the world is like. And then in just a few moments, they, they're, they're born and everything is different. They're cold. They get hungry. They have to gasp for air. Their understanding of what it's like to be alive, as limited as it is, has been completely changed in a matter of moments. And so for Jesus to tell Nicodemus that he needed to be born again spiritually was to tell Nicodemus that his understanding of spirituality, of spiritual living, was as limited and partial and insufficient as an unborn child's understanding of the real world. It's quite a thing to say to the teacher in all of Israel. And so to make it hit home for Nicodemus, Jesus uses uh, an illustration that he will understand or ties it to something Nicodemus will understand. He says, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And so Nicodemus, like, uh, like any other good Jew at that time, was looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans, who would, who would bring back the kingdom of David and establish their rule and authority over all the promised land. And Jesus says, to be a part of this kingdom, the kingdom that you're so excited, that you're looking for so eagerly, you must be born again. And this is discouraging for Nicodemus to hear because he doesn't even know what Jesus is talking about. He can't be a part of this future kingdom, a kingdom that he assumed he would have been, uh, he would have been a member of simply by being a Jew. And yet Jesus says, no, you must be born again. And there's another reason why this would have been difficult for Nicodemus to understand. And I think that's, that significance is found in the phrase, born again. And I agree with a lot of scholars who think that you would want to t- interpret this phrase as born from above. Born from above. You're born again or born from above. As if to say, born with power from outside yourself. Born with power from above, from heaven. And I think that highlights the point of the illustration of being born again, right? Of being born. Because I asked, I asked Mackenzie when, we were, when I was getting this sermon ready, like, what role does the baby play in the, in the delivery process? Is he helping at all? Is he, like, 
right there with you, pushing for the finish line. And she's like, no, it's, he doesn't do anything. He does about as much as I did, you know, nothing. <laughs> Stand there and just watch it all happen. The mom's the one doing all the work. And so for Nicodemus to hear that he had to be born again to enter God's kingdom was to hear, Nicodemus, something has to happen to you that you can't do for yourself. You're not able to qualify yourself for entry into God's kingdom. Being born again is something that happens to you, not something that you can do for yourself. And all this is just mind-blowing for Nicodemus. This is, this is not what he's used to hearing. This is not what he's expecting. And so we see him ask a very reasonable question there in verse 4. I think it's the question that you or I would have asked if we were in his shoes. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And he's being a little facetious here. He knows that he can't be physically born again. He knows he can't physically enter into his mother. I mean, after a child's born, even if you could crumple a little baby up just the right shape to get him back inside. There's no convincing the mom to do that, right? <laughs> so Nicodemus is, 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 is asking kind of a facetious question here to say, what are you talking about, Jesus? This doesn't make any sense. This, this is nonsense, being born again. What are you talking about? So in verses 5 and 6, Jesus gives a little bit more information about what it is to be born from above. In verse 5, he says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is a ton of debate over what water and what Spirit is in, these, in this verse. And I have an opinion, but it's just an opinion. You know? It's not like I have all the answers. If you disagree with me, that's totally fine. Personally, I think water and Spirit are both references to spiritual regeneration, the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. I think essentially verse 5 is a restatement of verse 3, with a little more specificity. And I think that because uh, regeneration is often called the washing of regeneration, and so there's a cleansing aspect to being born again, um, to have your, your, your sin nature washed and removed. And to be born of the Spirit would be to be filled with the Spirit. That's just my opinion. But either way, the, the important thing to remember here is that Jesus is, again, affirming that there is a power outside of Nicodemus that would have to cause him to be made alive. And then in verse 6, Jesus makes a distinction between what Nicodemus was accustomed to and what Jesus was talking about even more clear. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so to understand this, I want us to consider the religion that Nicodemus was so ingrained in. It was a religion, it was a religion that was all about earthly matters, all about the here and now, all about status, all about the way you presented yourself to other people, the clothes you wore, the way in which you spoke, a very here and now centered religion. And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh, that which is of the flesh, that which is of the temporal, human, constrained life is flesh. It's temporal, it's worthless, it'll fade away. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What Jesus is trying to do in these verses is to draw Nicodemus' mind away from the religion that he was used to, that he was accustomed to, that was comfortable for him, and to get him to think outside of 
earthly matters when it came to religion, to, have, to draw his mind away from what other people thought about him and draw his mind into what his, his true spiritual condition actually was. And this is just not the kind of religion that Nicodemus was accustomed to. And I think there's an application for us in these verses as well. So often, our religious practice becomes of the flesh. It becomes a work that we want to do in and of ourselves and for a sh- as a show for other people almost, right? It's easy to, to come to church to worship in a way that everybody thinks, oh, that, that, that looks nice, that looks appropriate. They look like a very spiritual person. But if that doesn't reflect a reality on the inside, if that doesn't reflect spiritual life on the inside, it's worthless. And I think that Nicodemus ought to serve not as something for us to judge, but as a mirror for ourselves, to examine our own lives and not to judge Nicodemus, but to find those portions of our life that resemble Nicodemus, those portions of our spiritual practice that are of the flesh, that are not spirit-focused, that are not with a mind towards the future. I think so often we look at biblical accounts as as something to point our finger at and say, oh, at least I'm not like that. You know, at least I'm not so ignorant that I could be like Nicodemus, right? But the reason John includes it here is not for us to judge. It's for us to examine and say, where is Nicodemus in us? Where is the portion of our life that is self-righteous, that is earth-focused, that has a limited scope, that has a, that has a temporal motivation, And as we do that and replace that with a focus on the spiritual things, eternal things, things that are of eternal value, those earthly, fleshly things will fade away from our focus. So now Jesus is going to bring this paragraph to a close and make another point about spiritual rebirth there in verses 7 and 8. He's going to teach Nicodemus that spiritual regeneration and the new birth is accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit. And at this point, I think Nicodemus must have had his, you know, his mouth dropped open, just kind of like, what are you saying? Because Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's like saying, Nicodemus, this is, this is basic stuff. And then in verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is going to use the illustration of wind to demonstrate what it is like to be born again. And whenever I think about wind, I think about one event in my life. Back about 2006-ish, we had a terrible Minnesota winter snowstorm. It's one of those ones where you get a foot of snow, and then a foot of ice, and then another foot of snow, right? It's just a miserable, miserable storm. And at that time, my family, as a part of their janitorial business, was cleaning the local public library. And so... Being a good, young, homeschool boy, that meant I got conscripted into forced labor every Saturday afternoon to go help clean the library. Let me tell you, if you want your kids to hate the library, make them dust shelves every Saturday. Like, I I hate going to the library to this day, but that's beside the point. Anyways, as we're walking into the library that day, my dad is walking around the corner, and there's just a massive gust of wind that blows down the street. And my dad already struggles with balance. And this wind with the ice on the ground was too much for him, and he went down hard. 
He smashed his face into the ground. It broke his glasses. It cut his face open above his eye. He wound up breaking several bones in his face. It's just a really awful thing to watch. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was terrifying. And my sister, Trina, walking just a little bit after us, sees this all happen. She's carrying her armload of school books. She panics, and she drops everything on the ground and starts screaming as another gust of wind comes up and get, grabs all of her papers and just blows it away up the street. It is just horrible. And it just, in a matter of like five seconds, there's complete chaos and pandemonium, all because of a cu- couple gusts of wind. We didn't see it coming, and all of a sudden it was there, and we could do nothing about it. And so this is kind of the picture I think that comes to my mind when I think about what Jesus is saying here in verse 8. You hear the wind, but you don't see it coming. You don't see it coming or going. You can't control the wind. It just kind of happens. And what you observe is the effects of the wind. You see the trees blowing. You see the school papers flying up the street. You see your dad on the ground. You know, it's, that's, that's what you have as evidence of the wind. And that's the way that Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit operates. You don't summon the Holy Spirit. You don't control the Holy Spirit, but you do observe what the Holy Spirit is doing. You observe the effects that the Holy Spirit has in the life of a person who is becoming regenerated or being made alive. And the effects of the Holy Spirit in the life of a new believer is astounding. That's the picture of religion that Jesus is putting before Nicodemus. Religion that is within, that is Life from within, given from above, not something that you can put on from the outside. This is just such a new picture for Nicodemus. He cannot grasp it at all. And so he says in verse 9, how can these things be? How could it be possible that God would work with humans in this way? How could it be possible that God would dwell within humans and give them life from within themselves? How could this all be possible? This isn't, this isn't even kind of what Nicodemus was looking for in a Messiah. Jesus answers and kind of rebukes him there in verse 10. He says, are you the teacher in Israel and yet you do not understand these things? saying, Nicodemus, how can you call yourself this, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin, this premier religious authority and not understand what I'm talking about? And now, Jesus is going to be, we're going to be ready to see the next and final main point of this text today, and that, that is Jesus' sacrifice makes regeneration a reality. So let's examine how Jesus unpacks this for Nicodemus. First of all, there in verse 11, we see that Jesus establishes his credibility. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. This is kind of a little bit of a play on words here on Jesus' part. Nicodemus enters the conversation in verse 2 and says, We know that you are a teacher come from God. And the we that Nicodemus represents is the Sanhedrin, the religious authority, the religious elites of Israel. And now Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. And Jesus represents a we that has much more authority, much more knowledge, 
much more perspective than Nicodemus could ever hope to have. And again, at the end of the verse there, he says that you do not receive our testimony. And this is directed at Nicodemus again as a representative of this larger group of people. He's saying, I have come from heaven with firsthand eyewitness testimony and knowledge that the things that I'm saying are true. This is God's plan. This is God's intention. But you're not receiving our testimony, although I have the firsthand knowledge. And then in verse 12, he says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And here Jesus is pointing out to Nicodemus that if you don't understand the earthly things of salvation, the the matters of salvation that happen on earth, namely the regeneration, it's what they've been talking about this entire time. If you don't understand how a person can be made spiritually alive, you have no hope of understanding the heavenly or the matters of salvation that are beyond this earth. And I think there's there's a good application point for us in this as well. And that is that if you want to understand God more fully, if you want to understand the Bible more completely, you need to start by understanding salvation. You need to start by understanding the work that God is doing in your heart through regeneration, or has done in your heart through regeneration. If you want to know your God better, you need to get to know what he did for you in salvation better. And what you'll find is that as you understand the core truth of the entire Bible, which is the gospel, everything else starts to make more sense. You start to know God better as you understand the way in which he operated in salvation. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, these are the basic truths of salvation. These are the things that you, as a teacher in Israel, should have been talking about for your entire life. This has always been God's plan. The gospel is the through line that connects Genesis to Revelation. And Nicodemus, as the teacher in Israel, should have understood that this was the case. And yet he did not accept God's testimony initially. The the group that he represented rejected Jesus. And then in verse 13, Jesus establishes his unique role in God's plan. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So now Jesus establishes that he is a unique representative of this plan that God has to regenerate human beings. He is the only one who has descended from heaven. He is the only one who is able to come from God and bring salvation to the hearts of men. This has always been God's plan. Nicodemus should have been looking for someone just like Jesus. Nicodemus should have been telling everyone around him, all of his students, to be looking for someone like Jesus. This is God's plan Now, verses 16 through 22 get into, you know, Jesus' unique qualifications for this mission a lot more. We're going to leave that there for now and talk about those last few verses. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So now Jesus is going to get back and answer Nicodemus' question from verse, I think it's verse 9. Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? How could it be possible? Jesus is going to answer that. And he's going to use an illustration that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. 
from Numbers 21 and the account of that bronze serpent on a pole. And when I was a kid and I learned that story from the Old Testament, it was always really confusing to me. I was, it just seemed odd to me. Why would, why would a bronze snake be the way that God chose to provide deliverance for his people? Because you know the story, right? The people of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and shock of all shocks, they start complaining. Never heard that before. They whine at Moses, they complain, but this time God punishes them in an immediate way, a very tangible way. He sends those fiery serpents in amongst them with a lethal bite, and the people are helpless to deal with it. These serpents are killing scores and scores of people, and so they cry out again for deliverance, and God is gracious and provides a way of escape from death by having Moses craft that bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, so that if anyone was bit by a snake, they could look at this bronze serpent and not die from the snake bite. And it's such a puzzling story, right? But it makes a lot of sense when you view it through the lens of the cross, as a picture of the cross. You see, those fiery serpents were the direct result of the people's sin. They were a emblem, a physical, tangible thing that people could see and understand was a consequence of their sin. And in order to be healed, they needed to cast their eyes upon that bronze serpent. And in doing that, they were acknowledging several things. First of all, that they had sinned. That the, bron- the serpents biting them were the just punishment for the sin that they had committed. It was also to admit that they could not heal themselves. They could do nothing about the snakes of their own power and will. They, they had no ability to get rid of the snakes on their own. And it was to accept a gift of deliverance from God. That's the same picture of the cross, is it not? That Jesus lifted up and crucified is the just consequence of every single one of our sins to cast our eyes upon him and say, I can't deal with my sin myself. I have to accept this gift that has been provided for me on the cross. To acknowledge that we are, in fact, helpless in our own capabilities to deal with our sin. To put it in the words, the language of regeneration, we're dead and we can't make ourselves alive, but we know that it's possible through Christ. And I love how the, the verse from the song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, puts it. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That's the picture of Christ on the cross. And that's what Jesus is drawing on here to describe for Nicodemus his, his state of spiritual death, his state of spiritual apathy. That's how a person can be made alive. That's the sacrifice that was required to make the unregenerate alive. That's the price that had to be paid. And so what's the end result of looking upon the Son of Man lifted up? And as verse 15 says, believing in him, that person is granted eternal spiritual life. 
the life through the Holy Spirit. They are born from above with power from outside themselves. They are made eternally, spiritually alive. It's a remarkable journey that Jesus takes Nicodemus on throughout this text. He demonstrates for Nicodemus the insufficiency of his current spiritual practice. He demonstrates for Nicodemus that his entire life up to that point had been in a false pursuit, a pursuit after the things of the flesh, a pursuit after the things that are going to fade away and dissolve to nothing. And he showed Nicodemus that there is a power able to make the dead, spiritually dead person alive. And I think there's a few really key applications for us in these verses. You know, this is a very familiar text for a lot of us. And I haven't said anything today that's really like new or shocking or probably something any of you haven't heard before. But I think it's so important for us to come back to texts like this again and again because it helps us stay humble, right? For those of us who have been saved for any number of years, it can become very easy to lead a life that looks like Nicodemus. We know what we're supposed to do. It's, a part of, it's, it's, it's habitual for us to wake up, perhaps do our devotions, to pray before we eat even. Things like that become so habitual, they become ritualistic, and we forget why we even do it. But passages like this remind us that we would have no hope of leading a life that is spiritually alive. We would have no hope of, of entry into God's kingdom were it not for Christ crucified and were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating us and making us spiritually alive. And so we ought to come back to texts like John 3, 1 through 15 to humble ourselves before our Savior and to, to be grateful. It also functions to help us evangelize. When we view the world through that paradigm that we talked about at the beginning of dead versus alive, we see our mission field and we see the significance of our mission field, don't we? So many people that surround us in our communities, perhaps even in our churches, are completely unaware of the peril that they face in spiritual death. They have no idea. And so it is our mission to, to go and evangelize these people, to, to help them understand that they are dead, that they need to be made alive. And in, our, in faithfulness to that calling, we have the opportunity to watch the Holy Spirit do his work and make these people alive, spiritually speaking. It's essential that we not lose sight of the gospel. As we study the rest of, of God's word, we need to be drawn back again and again to gospel texts that connect everything and help it all make sense for us. If we lose sight of the gospel in our evangelism, if we lose sight of the gospel in our day-to-day lives, we've lost sight of the core of what makes us us, what makes us alive. And so we ought to be again and again coming back to Jesus and Nicodemus and many of the other wonderful gospel texts and reminding ourselves how it is that we became spiritually alive. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the example of Nicodemus. We're grateful for um, the work that you've done on our behalf by making it possible for us to be made alive. 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to remain humble, that we would never uh, become arrogant in the life that we live. Lord, help us not to resemble Nicodemus. Help us not to become focused on the things of the flesh. Help our focus to stay on things of the Spirit, things that are eternal. And God, we ask as we go from here today, we live our lives this week, that we will look for opportunities to evangelize, to share this message, and to be a beacon of the life that is within us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.